0: Let's continue our morning in prayer. We're going to pray for another church in our community, praying for uh, Commerce Community Church in Rockwall, and their their pastors and families, and for the church as a whole. And praying for uh, the Dobe people of India—12 million people, 0.02 percent of which are Christians. These people are considered untouchable. Literally, uh, they um, actually—they're sort of this this group of people are a lower caste among the people of India. And their sort of task among the community is to wash people's clothes. What a privilege we have to lift up these people this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for these next few minutes that we have to spend together. Uh, we want to lift up another uh, church in our community, a church that is uh, dear to us with many of us that have gone to be part of it in commerce. Lord, we pray for David Ferguson and his family, for uh, Tim Thomas, uh, newly appointed as an uh, a full-time pastor there uh, for Ron Perone and for Kevin Tibble. Lord, we want to lift them up and just ask you to bless them. Lord, we pray that you would give them uh, just a, a front-row seat to what you are are doing in commerce, what you are doing through this people. Lord, we pray that you would um, uh, give them wisdom, uh, give them a gentleness with each other, a patience with each other, give them a like-mindedness. Lord, uh, that they would uh, together. Um, enjoy you in a way that would just spill over onto a people and would equip them and um, uh, encourage them and lead them to enjoy Christ and commerce in the surrounding area. Lord, we pray that that would spill over into Mondays and workplaces and dens and marriages and schools, and we pray that a people there in commerce would truly be salty, bright, and aromatic. Lord, we are lifting them up and thankful for the chance to bring them before you this morning and ask you to bless them. Or two in their ministry to so many students that are coming through commerce from all over the world, Lord, we pray that you would connect dots of people that either don't know you or people that do know you but need to be equipped and sent, Lord, that they would take the good news back home to the far corners, thinking they came to the States for an education uh, surprising them, Lord, with uh, the notion of coming to the States for a burden for their home and that they would go home with the good news of Christ. Lord, we are entrusting this church to you and asking you to bless them this morning. We're also praying for a people group this morning, the Doby of India. Lord, we are praying a, a massive prayer for 12 million people, uh, just such a small percentage of which are even Christian uh, that we are e- even aware of. Lord, we are um, just... In many ways, sort of humbled and uh, uh, at the notion of a whole people, a whole people group that are considered untouchable, and a whole people group that uh, have a, a job of washing the upper caste's clothes. Lord, we are thankful that we get to pray for some servants this morning, for some literal servants, that they could be servants of the high king of heaven. or that you would draw them to you, that you would send people that are too uncomfortable in staying here to go to these far corners with the good news. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in drawing the nations to you and that Christ would come back at the end of that sooner rather than later. Lord, we pray, praying also this morning about uh, this time that we spend together, Lord, we pray for uh, just really some um, spirit-directing, spirit, spirit, uh, maybe possibly even convicting time that uh, the Spirit would guide all of us and direct us uh, and would not only show us our need for a Savior, but show us all that we have in Christ. We're to pray that you would speak clearly to your people this morning. We are entrusting these few minutes to you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. It was 9 o'clock on Sunday night in July in 2015 when a journalist named Brian Krebs came upon the scoop of his life. The 42-year-old was at home in Virginia at the time and wearing his PJs. For years, Krebs had written a popular blog about Internet security, analyzing thefts of consumer data from big companies around the world, Tesco, Adobe, Domino's Pizza, among them. Now Krebs, as his weekend came to an end, was being tipped off about a more sensational breach. An anonymous informant had emailed him a list of links, directing him to caches of data, that had been stolen from servers at a Canadian firm called Avid Life Media, ALM. Krebs vaguely knew of ALM. For years, it had run a notorious, widely publicized web service called Ashley Madison, a dating site founded in 2002 with the explicit intention of helping married people have affairs with one another. Life is short, have an affair was their slogan. At the time Krebs received his tip-off, Ashley Madison claimed to have an international membership of 37.6 million people all over the globe. All of them assured that their use of the service would be anonymous and 100 percent discreet. Only now Krebs was looking at the real names, the real credit card numbers of Ashley Madison members. He was looking at street addresses and postal codes. Later on, after this story broke, there was a whole new group of people that came up and sort of raised up and mobilized after this. There's a little reference to it. I'm reading an article, an excerpt from an article about this event back in 2015. It says, moral crusaders operating with impunity began to shame and squeeze the exposed. In Alabama, editors at a newspaper decided to print in its pages all the names of people from the region who appeared on Ashley Madison's database. Uh, the, just the summary of the event in, from this article is the hack of Ashley Madison was historic. The first leak, it was the first leak of on, in the online era to expose a mass view not of passwords, not of pictures, not of diplomatic gossip, not military secrets, but something weirder, deeper, and less tangible. This was the leak of desires. I don't know... If you followed this news event back in 2015, I didn't follow it closely, but I remember the story, and I remember that I held sort of a, I experienced sort of a personal satisfaction, kind of a deep satisfaction that these guys were outed. Anybody else, maybe I was the only one that was sort of like, oh, the notion of people who'd been cheating on their spouses, squirming, and wondering, is my wife or my husband going to find out? That I'm listed on this database. I want you to keep that thought, whatever your answer to that question, whatever you may, even if you may have not answered that question, just keep the thoughts that you have in these next few minutes as we go to God's Word. If you would join me and stand at the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Lord, speak to us from these words this morning. Show us ultimate reality. Show us the ultimate truth. Show us ourselves and show us your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ. We're praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a seat, please. This is the second of of six examples in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount uh, of what I would say what life looks like with Christ in and on it. It's a place in the Sermon on the Mount where he's just spoken about uh, him being the fulfillment of the law. And then he begins to sort of speak to some very familiar law. And in each of these six examples, they follow similar outlines. First of all, he deals with Torah, old ancient Hebrew law. He brings it forward into the conversation there on the Sermon on the Mount. Then he explains the true intent of the law. And then he gives some practical application. It's like a little mini sermon within a sermon. So this morning we're going to follow his flow and look just at verses 27 through 30 a little closer. I'll give you a little heads up of some other places I'd like for you to be ready to turn. So you can jot these down, and if you'd like to, you can go ahead and have them ready. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is one. Second Samuel chapter 11. Um, Matthew 12. And 1 Corinthians 7. This is a few little places we're going to go over the course of the morning. So let's first deal with Torah. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is likely a familiar passage. I'd like for you to go ahead and turn, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm going to share a passage with you from Exodus. It's home base of what Christ is referring to He's speaking back to uh, the very familiar Ten Commandments. This is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Right after that is you shall not steal, which has a little bit of overlap, because it's also connected to the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not cover their male, male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's it, that is your neighbor's. Those are familiar commandments, and they have some overlap between the seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Those are all sort of interconnected. Let me define for you an ancient version, an ancient definition of adultery. Okay, I'm going to qualify this as the ancient definition of adultery in their context. Having a sexual encounter with a married Israelite woman or man. Okay, I'm going to read that again because I want you to pay close attention to what was said there. Having a sexual encounter with a married Israelite woman or man. Okay, let's go. We'll just kind of park that thought, and we'll come back to that over the morning, over the course of the morning. We're going to go to Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse one. This is just a sort of a, you know, when you think about examples of adultery in our Bible, you know, Bible characters that were guilty of this, of transgressing this this commandment, this would be a go-to passage. Okay, so this will likely be familiar for many of you. It may not be for all of you, but just I want you to kind of pay attention to some of the details of what's unfolding here in these few verses, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. Okay, notice who didn't go in that story. David, one of the kings, in the time where kings go out to battle, didn't go out to battle. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Jump down to the uh, after the little paragraph there. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's a familiar story. You probably know, uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens in the next chapter. Nathan confronts David with this wonderful parable, You know the kind of parable that you'd like to be able to come up with when you're wanting to talk to a friend about their sin. He comes up with this wonderful parable that ends with, David, you are the man, and of course David is convicted of his sin. But you can read the headings on the following pages and sort of get a sense of what happened as a result of this sin, what happened to David? David certainly found forgiveness, but his, uh, his reign and his family were in ruins. You can look at some of the headings. Absalom murders Amnon. Uh, just flip over a page. Absalom flees to Gesher. Absalom returns to Jerusalem. Absalom's conspiracy. David flees Jerusalem. If you read the headings before this terrible event with Bathsheba, and then the headings afterwards, you realize this was a a pivotal moment in his reign and his rule and in the life of his family and the life of his ministry as king. It is a cautionary tale that adultery is a terribly destructive sin. Now I'd like to add some other cultural treatment of adultery. I defined for you adultery at the beginning of just a few minutes ago, having a sexual encounter with a married Israelite woman or man. Let me sort of amplify this and bring out some more context. In a strict sense, according to that definition, adultery was not very common. Because guys had respect for, for other Israelites and their rights with their woman, their spouse. Okay, Let me explain this. Uh, it was a, in a very strict sense, this was very uh, uncommon, uh, especially among those uber-righteous scribes and Pharisees. What was common? And this may be shocking for you. It may be surprising. It was for me. What was common was for Israelite men to have sexual relations with a Gentile or a slave and not call it adultery at all. Just a hookup. I thought about what this is. You know, this in some ways. Now, on the other hand, the woman was to remain chaste. She did not have this this sort of leeway that an Israelite man apparently had to have a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter with a Gentile or a slave. What appears to be behind this is the primary concern that a man did not infringe upon the rights of another Israelite man. It's tragic, isn't it? We're just dealing with the context there. We're dealing with what was going on on that hillside that day as Jesus is preaching this sermon, the mindset of the people there on that mountainside. And I was thinking about in some ways, this is like a form of ancient cultural pornography. We're not talking about some sort of visual encounter. We're talking about a real encounter. So it's not the same thing. But in terms of the concept there, there's no strings attached intercourse is what we're talking about. No strings attached. No one's rights are infringed upon. There's no theft that we can tell here. There's just plain intercourse. And we're going to say, in this case, there's no adultery, at least according to their ancient definition. But the problem is, our Lord is preaching. Our Lord is speaking to this. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. You can keep 1 Samuel chapter 11 handy, because we're going to refer back to it here in just a few minutes. We're going to go back to Jesus' explanation there in Matthew chapter 5 and see what he has to say about that particular commandment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he says, But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, I want you to just kind of imagine your definition of adultery being their definition. I want you to imagine stepping up on this hillside that day and hearing this sermon and then looking around when he says these words. And did, did he just say what I think he said? Did he just say that everyone who simply looks at a woman any woman with a lustful intent has already transgressed this commandment? Man, it should have been shocking for them. I would imagine it was quite shocking for them. And if we can sort of climb into the context there, then maybe we can let the shock hit us also for a second. Let me sort of bring out what we're dealing with here. First of all, everyone. In the Greek there, we're speaking of an ancient Greek word that's translated everyone. Everyone, not just Israelites, not just Israelite to Israelite, but everyone, speaking of everyone, married or unmarried, everyone who's before marriage or after marriage, everyone who's outside of marriage and inside of marriage, who looks on a woman. In this case, we're not just talking about wives. Now, in the Greek, that word actually means wife or woman. But in the context, he seems to be panning out and speaking to all women. Married or not, Gentile or not, servant or not. Everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent. Now, let's just deal with this looks thing. The looks thing seems pretty harmless. You know, you just look at somebody, I'm looking at y'all. which That seems like a very innocent word. But there's something to be uh, sort of drawn out there in the tense. First of all, we're talking present tense. Looks. Okay, we're going to explain it more in the phrase that comes after that. But just alone in the present tense, we're talking about something that's more than a glance. I was thinking about places where I see this happen. And where I too, maybe like you, could be tempted to do the same. In great people watching spots. Do any of y'all like, really enjoy people watching like me? I, my, one of my favorite places people watch is the airport. You've got nothing to do. You're waiting for a flight. You're sitting there. You're excited. And you've got no, no cares in the world. It's premium people watching. And the thought of what people will wear on a plane just still baffles me. Like, do you realize what you're wearing? Do you have anybody meeting you on the other end that's going to be glad to see you? You should go change. You know, but this, this thought, you know, that's, that's a sad thought. But you know, the, you know the look. I bet you know what I'm talking about. Where you see a man look at a woman with what I will call, that actually the definition of it is, is, is perfect, perfectly defined, an ogle. An ogle, that is looking at a woman with an amorous intent. You know what I'm talking about. This gal walks by and you see another guy, look at this gal and just study her. We're not talking about a glance, we're talking about a present tense look. Now this is different from the glance or the look at a woman or a man that might recognize that this man or woman is beautiful or handsome. Okay, I, want to, I want to differentiate there. I think that's important. There's nothing sinful about being beautiful or handsome. Right, Greg? I mean, it's, it's, it's a cross that we have to carry. I mean, I've carried it my whole life. There's nothing sinful about it. You just deal with it. You know what I'm saying? But the thought really is you, there's nothing wrong with recognizing someone is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with recognizing someone is handsome. That's nothing. In fact, it's interesting just doing my daily Bible reading how often you see someone mentioned as beautiful or handsome. Uh, Sarah was mentioned as being beautiful. Rachel was mentioned as being beautiful in both, she was beautiful in both form and appearance. I'm like, man, huh. So it's okay to notice that someone is beautiful, but it's when you take it to the next step where it becomes ogling, where it becomes with the amorous intent. And this phrase that comes after that, helps us differentiate between the look of recognizing this is a handsome man or a beautiful woman and taking it to lustful intent. This is what defines the difference between a sinful, present tense look and a glance or a notice, even that someone might be handsome or beautiful. This is with the intent to have a sexual experience with her or him, real or imagined. Okay, I want you to understand that. We're talking about looking at someone with the intent to have a sexual experience with him or her, real or imagined. Let's go back to this 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel passage and see if we can figure out what's happening here. There's a a distinct difference between a glance and a sinful look. We're talking about the sinful look as being a transgression of this, this commandment as Jesus is explaining right here. This passage I just read, 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's see if we can look for it. Let's see if we can find where the ogle came in. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, mistake number one. He stayed home, and apparently he was hanging out on the couch. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw... From the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Okay, seems to happen right there after that moment. Something happens between verse 2 and verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Typically the way, and the ancient way adultery would have been defined, and typically the way we look at adultery, we look at verse 4 as the, as the place of transgression. What Jesus is saying is that transgression actually initially took place in verse 2.5, or whatever it is, between verse 2 and verse 3, where David was ogling. David looks and sees present tense, and he ogles. What began as a glance became a present tense tense. Look, what Jesus is saying is that 2.5 and verse 4 are equally culpable. What he's saying here is the heart and the hand are equally culpable. The eye and the heart are equally culpable. What I want you to think about here—the reason I thought about sharing that Ashley Madison story at the very beginning and sharing about how satisfying as it was, because I, 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 as it was for me—is what I realize here is what Jesus is saying. If we really get what He's saying, is this is a massive data breach. He has just breached the data on mankind since we first sinned. I was totally approved for um, for Adam to scope out Eve and check out Eve. Well, even after the fall. But since the fall of man, from that point on, we can recognize that this has been a human problem. What Jesus is exposing here is a massive data breach, well beyond the Ashley Madison breach. Millions of names have been released in this one statement. And I dare say that it's probably every single name, especially of men in this room, are on the list. If you've ever entertained the thought of a sexual encounter with someone other than your spouse, you're on the list. If you've ever entertained the thought of a sexual encounter with someone other than your spouse, you're on the list. This is very much a man centric passage, but this is not speaking only to men. It's especially to men, because for men, we're talking about something that is very visual, it starts with a look. For men. It might with a gal too, but very much so with a man. It appears here that Jesus is speaking to those who want to hide behind the achievement of the whitewashed outside that they've never actually committed physical adultery with someone else. Following that ancient definition of adultery, it seems he's speaking to those who hide behind the whitewashed outside while there's darkness and sin. Inside, like he accused the scribes and the Pharisees of being. I want you to understand that this is easy, easy to do. If you're like me at all, and I suspect that I'm not the only person in the room that felt a little bit of satisfaction about the notion of the Ashley Madison breach and those guys squirming and getting nabbed. What I want you to see is the room is real level in here right now. Jesus has leveled the room on that mountainside and he's leveled the room in here and he's exposing that there's a disconnect between the outer and the inside and it's a whole lot easier to tend to the outside, isn't it? That's what we tend to do. People often use religion in a derogatory sense. That sort of bothers me because there is such thing as pure and undefiled religion. But there is a the reality we can use religion in a sense that we just tend to the outside. Look how tidy we are. Look how clean we are. We've never committed adultery. We've never murdered anybody. On this mount, Jesus says, yes, you are. You are murderers. You are adulterers. And you need another solution. You need something to connect to the inside. Because we love tending to the outside. It's so measurable. It's so objective. We can look around the room and say, I'm better than these guys. Am I better than those guys because I haven't done what they did? And Jesus says, let's deal with the interior. Let's go inside. Let's look deeper. What's interesting, I had a a couple pages of notes that I was going to share with you of passage after passage, and I may do that through an email, in the Old Testament where God speaks of dealing with the inside and the outside. He speaks of matters of the heart along with the matters of the outside. And he addresses the fact that they've got these beautiful displays of faith on the outside, but on the inside they're dark and dead. He says, your hearts are far from me. I just was doing just daily Bible reading in Romans chapter 2 and found a nice example that this has always been the case. This isn't some sort of new covenant concept where we're going to deal with the inside and the out. There's a reality that in Christ we can, but even under the old covenant, Even in the ancient Hebrew Torah, that commandment was speaking to the inside as well. Romans chapter 2, you can just listen to this passage. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's always been about the interior and the and the exterior, and I think that's why at the end of this little section, he says, "You must be perfect and whole, as my Father is whole." He's calling us to wholeness, purity, to whole person purity. But we like to lean and just tend to the outside. It's easier. It's easier. There are only a few wretched souls in that case, and we're rarely one of them. Jesus says to every man in this passage, and I think every man, at least every man that I've ever known, what Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. The good thing is he has some practical application. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see if we can uh, connect to this practical application. This, these, these little mini sermons he's got for us are wonderful. We can really see some amazing things emerge and some very simple responses, some, uh, some nice go-to passages. This one is really handy. The practical application, I'll just share the passage for you, and then we'll just kind of expose it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Here's the other one. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Whew. Thanks, Jesus. That's so practical and handy. (laughs) Wow. Um, The reason that he's speaking to the right hand and the right eye, especially the right hand, is these were the most valued appendages. Apart from the tribe of Benjamin, everybody's right-handed. They dealt with the right hand. I don't know why the tribe of Benjamin was left-handed, but for everyone else, the right hand was most most highly valued. And he's speaking to the right hand and the right eye. And what appears to be completely impractical, Some people took it literally over the years. There was a guy named Origen. He was a second and third century theologian. This guy is really a kook, but he's one of our early church fathers. When I first started learning about what this guy believed, I was like, he ain't my early church father. But realizing that God sustained and preserved the message through men like this. This guy castrated himself. This guy took this passage literally and actually did that to himself. This is not an encouragement in this passage from our Lord for self mutilation. That is forbidden in the Old Testament and it's discouraged, I think, implied everywhere else. Gouging out an eye, listen to this, or cutting off a hand isn't radical enough. He's because you still have another eye, (laughs) you still have another hand. You still have the potential there. He's using what's called hyperbole to make us understand that what he's saying here is that we are to deal drastically with sin. Drastically with sin. I'd like to share, if I can, just a sampling of some New Testament passages that seem to be, sound to be dealing drastically with sin. Just listen to these passages. I'll give you the reference, and you can jot them down and go there yourself and take a look at them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, all week long I've been thinking, man, Sundays just seem so routine. They're so easily we just kind of move right in this thing that we do each week. And we show up and we just kind of listen for a little while. And then we might chat about it on the way home. And we go right back to life. And I thought, Lord, please somehow alert us to the, the gravity of what we're talking about here. Do you understand what's being said here when he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God? What he's saying here is not that you're not going to get some good stuff. He's saying that you're going to spend eternity in hell. Can we just consider that for a moment? We're talking about dealing with sin drastically. Drastic measures to deal with sin because of what's at stake? Heaven and hell. Here's another passage, and they're all through, littered all through our New Testaments. They're called viceless. lists. Here's another one in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're not talking about trivial stuff, y'all. We're talking about some crazy, important things. Here's another one in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. This is the message associated with each of these vice lists. You were once these people, but now you're not. These people who are practicing these sorts of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But y'all are different. The passage over in 1 Corinthians that I just read, that vice list ends with such were some of you. You were washed, though. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You're a different person now. You're a different people now. We don't have to be enslaved to these besetting sins anymore. Man, we should celebrate that. A room full of people should say, Oh, we're the man, but we're not stuck the man. Because there's a new man. There's a new man that did something so profound that he washed us of our list, of our placement on that list. This worldwide, human-wide Ashley Madison list that Jesus published on this hillside that make us all go, guilty. We were washed. We were sanctified. That's not who you are. Man, this should be a strong encouragement to you. I'll share one more little vice list from the book of Ephesians. I may have read that one already. You're from Galatians. I, mean, I read that one too. Colossians. Here's one I haven't read. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. I think I read that one too, but it doesn't hurt reading it again. Ephesians. Did I not read that one? Okay, good. Good, thank you. Tinted Bunch. Here it is, Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Man, let me just tell you right now, gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand isn't radical enough. We're talking about some serious measures to be taken for our lives and our walk to be in keeping with who we've already been reckoned to be in Christ. Hear what I said there. For our lives and our walks to be in keeping with who we already are. So here's some, some more practical measures That you can take to put this sin To death First of all Ask for forgiveness Let's start right there Ask for forgiveness Confess your sins one to another So that you will be what? Healed Man Start right there Ask for forgiveness For sexual relationships, real or imagined, outside of marriage. Start right there. Like right now. In fact, this might be strange, but let's do it anyway. Let's have a silent supper, Clint. Let's have a silent supper so that we can clean up our mess with our Heavenly Father and we can start right there and eat anew. Eat a fresh, Right there on the spot. We'll have a silent supper in a moment, so you can do that. Ask forgiveness for looking on another woman with lust or another man with lust. Whether rare, occasional, or regular, it's sin. Let's call it what it is, and let's bring it to Jesus, because he can handle it. He can deal with it. That's what he does with us and for us. So let's start right There, You know, David's sin, it made a mess of his life, and man, thankfully he was forgiven. And we know, I mean, you know right now that this sin is destructive. It it reverberates out into so many different places. But let me tell you this, in Christ, it is redemptive. It is oh so redemptive. I've seen it happen. I've had a front row seat to seeing what God can do in a situation where you're going, man, this is done but for Christ. So let's start right there with asking for forgiveness. I have a couple passages for you to turn to and we're going to land the plane. The next one's Matthew chapter 12. This is a principle. You can turn there and be ready to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some real uh, practical things you can do here. This, this, more is concept- this, this first thought is, is more conceptual. Matthew chapter 12, it's a little parable that I think is a nice parable. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 43. No, that's not what I want. Oh, yeah, here it is. Yes, this is what I want. This may sound a little weird, but I want you to think about this. Just kind of use your noggin here and try and connect to what's being said here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... Okay, let's just take a besetting sin, something that you may struggle with. Maybe it's adultery. Maybe it's uh, uh, you struggle with pornography. Let's take some real things and kind of connect them to this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Okay, that sounds really weird and creepy, even. Okay, just kind of take the imagery. Imagine this house, okay, that had a spirit living in it, but it's been evacuated. It's been cleared. And let's imagine that just kind of connected to maybe a conversion has taken place. And that's what led to this person being able to clean house, is they trusted Christ, and the house is now vacant. But this spirit that went out to waterless places says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order, looking really tidy. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. I just asking you to just consider that parable in sort of an illustri- illustrative sense. That if you're dealing with those sorts of things and you're like, okay, what I want to do is sort of stave this off. I'm going to clear the house, but I'm going to leave it empty. Guess what's going to happen to you? Man, it's going to come back and it's going to be worse than it ever was before. If all you're doing is saying, I want to stay away from this forbidden tree. You know the two commands of the garden. Stay away from this tree and enjoy all the other fruit-laden trees. Okay, We often miss the other command and we focus on the stay away from the tree thing. So we stay away from this tree. We stand there and say, "Ah, God doesn't want me to take from that tree. So I'm just going to kind of hang out right here. I'm going to camp, grill cook some stuff and I'm not supposed to eat from you though but I'm gonna stay away guess what's gonna happen you're gonna go right back to it what you got to do is turn around and walk away from that tree and go enjoy a garden full of trees what we're talking about here and this is fitting I like this, this I, I didn't have to work real hard this was completely happenstance that I actually have a sports illustration on Super Bowl Sunday the best defense is a good offense The best defense is a good offense. A house emptied is a house at risk. The best defense is to fill that house with good stuff. So here's some examples. First for the married and then for the, no, we will start with the unmarried. First for the unmarried and then for the married. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're there, then you're ready. Both both of these passages or both these these helps for the married and then for the unmarried come from this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and to the widows I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So if you're unmarried and you're burning with passion, get married. That's what he's saying. Get you a woman. Get you a man. If you don't have any candidates, okay, you're like, I just don't want to grab a warm body. I want to find my soulmate. Maybe that whole soulmate thing is kind of overrated. I mean, it really is. I mean, arranged marriages are taking place all over the world right now. In fact, our Bible is full of arranged marriages where they loved one another because they set their love on them. That love may be more true than the thing that you think you feel when you're courting you might be feeling libido. You might be feeling, I love you, but I'm really loving me. Okay, so that's not an encouragement for any range marriages in here, just a notion. Just kind of put it in perspective, kind of lower the bar a little bit. He doesn't have to walk on water. He doesn't have to be a Disney prince. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he could just be a human being. Okay, or if you don't have any candidates, and you're like, all right, I don't have any candidates, I don't have any prospects right now, here's the next encouragement for the unmarried. Memorize the Bible. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I'm kind of kidding. I'm speaking hyperbolically. Memorize the Bible. Pour yourself into spiritual matters. Why not? If you got all this drive, you got all this energy, you got all this passion, Channel that into filling that house with good things. The best defense is a good offense. You ought to be signed up on every volunteer list for the local church and the local community needs that are out there. Anybody that would have you. If you find yourself sitting around at home, bored, sitting on the couch like David was, you're like, oh, I can't figure out why I'm still falling prey to this sin. You need to get up off that couch and go out and do what kings do. And go fight with your bubba's. man. To the unmarried, I, man, I'm gonna tell you right now. I've done it. I was unmarried for uh, Christian. I didn't marry till 28, so most of my 20s we were single. And I get it. It's not easy. It's not easy. But the crying about it, whining about it, you have a room full, a house full that you can fill with good things. The best defense is a good offense. So pour yourself into spiritual matters. David was home on the couch when he should have been out fighting with his Bubbas. It's interesting, when I read the article on Ashley Madison, the number one reason people signed up for Ashley Madison, they said, I was bored. I was bored. Don't be bored. Don't be bored. Pour yourself into spiritual matters. Okay, here's for the married. First Corinthians chapter 7 is the same chapter beginning in verse 3. The husband should give his wife conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A good defense, the best defense is a good offense. It's the same principle. For married folk, man, my encouragement to you is to enjoy the wedding gift that the Lord gave you on your wedding day. Work at it. Now, for those of you that are unmarried, you are, and maybe some of y'all that are married, you may, not, you may hear that word work, and that might surprise you. Because before you're married, you think, how could that possibly be work? Well, when you're married, it actually is work. You have to work at it. You have to be available. You have to be attentive to one another. You have to work at this, enjoying this wonderful wedding gift. But there's a strong principle at play here that when a husband and wife uh, are available to one another, they help each other while they enjoy a garden full of trees together. Man, the best defense is a good offense. And now, now I'm going to give you the best news of the morning. Those things are good. Man, being available for one another It's good for the unmarried to be busy in kingdom matters, to pour yourself into serving in a local church or memorize the Bible. Man, you could totally do that. It's probably been done. I I would think a single person, you got a lot of time to pour into that, a lot of energy, do it. Do something crazy and rad like that. Be busy. Okay, so maybe those are some helps to you. But let me tell you something. If you try and venture either one of those apart from this last point, they're going to be bankrupt. They're going to fall flat. This last point is true for the married and the unmarried and everyone else in the room. I guess that would qualify as everybody. This last point is for everybody. Here's a quote from one of the guys that I read. A guy's name is Don Carson. He said, Honesty before God in these matters, he's speaking of anger, he's speaking of lust, may bring us the poverty of spirit which our triumphs never will. What he's speaking to is the reality of climbing into these Sermon on the Mount passages should level the room. Should level the room where everyone in the room is going, I seethe with anger sometimes. I might not have any outbursts, but I got it in here. You're guilty. You're culpable. I burn with passion at times, but I've never cheated on my wife. You're culpable. You're guilty. We need something completely radical to transform inside and out. We need something completely otherworldly, something outside of us. In fact, someone outside of us to transform us inside and out. If you were on that hillside that day, imagining hearing that sermon from Jesus and said, man, you walked away and said, I really needed that sermon. That was good. You missed the point if you did this up to this point this morning and said, I really need this sermon, you're missing the point because here's the point. He's not just the preacher of the sermon. He's the point of the sermon. He's the prize of the sermon. He's the pursuit of the sermon. He's the only way that you can be reconciled inside and out. He's where we find forgiveness absolute and complete in the moment that we trust him when we're washed and sanctified. And then when we fail, not if we fail, we find forgiveness yet again. Because his blood is sufficient. Man, he's the good news of the morning. If you're here this morning say, man, I'm struggling with all manner of besetting problems. And this was one of them. Thanks a lot. The good news is, but there's Christ. Man, you can find the goods that you need in Christ. God has given us in Christ the means to deal with the insides. In Christ, we can deal with contempt. We can deal with anger. We can deal with lust. We can deal with all these terrible things that we all struggle with. We have a person to bring it to who can sympathize with our weakness, but he himself was never on the list. Don't you love that? He was never on the list, but yet he sympathizes with us, and he gives us help. My encouragement this morning is look to him, ultimately, and absolutely trust him, ultimately, and absolutely. He will not fail you. Let's pray. Lord, this is um, convicting. It's... uh, Alarming, hearing the consequences of those who continue in these kinds of sins. And at the same time, it is unbelievably good news to find that we have hope and we have help in Christ. Where we together, a room full of people, need Christ today in this moment, in this hour. We need Christ to reconcile in and out. We need Christ not just to clean up our behavior, but clean up our hearts. And, Lord, we are so thankful that in placing our faith and our trust in him, that he is doing that in us even today. Where we marvel at that. We celebrate that. Lord, we together pray that our lives will reflect who we already are as you work this in us. We are praying this, these things this morning in Christ's precious name. Amen.